Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thanks so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. Got a couple of very quick announcements. First, the podcast will now be airing once a week, and it can be heard on the Progressive Radio Network and Progressive Voices. The other change is that for the first time, this episode will feature a guest. He's music impresario and committed progressive Danny Goldberg, and we'll talk to him later on in the program. First, however, is the story of Neera Tandon, and it's a sad story to tell given so many things that need to be done in American government in terms of the coronavirus, in terms of a minimum wage, in terms of a whole bunch of stuff, the Green New Deal, but we have to talk I guess, about Neera Tandon. She's President Joe Biden's nominee to head the Office of Management and Budget. Her nomination is in grave danger, in part because of some edgy tweets she has since deleted and apologized for. Those tweets earned her the enmity of both those on the right and those on the left. Republican senators are practicing the worst kind of hypocrisy in opposing Tandon over tweets while voting to confirm the likes of Richard Grinnell, who was confirmed as ambassador to Germany despite tweeting that Rachel Maddow should take a breath and put on a necklace, he deleted and apologized, and of course, that and other tweets, and he apologized for them because they were at best insensitive and at worst straight up sexist. Then there's Ryan Zinke, who once called Hillary Clinton the Antichrist. He was confirmed as Interior Secretary in 2017, with support from 51 Republicans and several Democrats, including Joe Manchin III, who now says he cannot support Tandon. Want more? Jeff Sessions allegedly called the NAACP a pinko organization that hates white people. He was talking about the NAACP, one of the more moderate African-American advocacy organizations, and longstanding, by the way. Did that impede the vote to confirm him as Attorney General in 2017? Of course it didn't. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. A nomination is in trouble because of tweets? Tweets? This just reinforces all that regular folks hate about the Beltway. Now, to be fair, Tandon has been hit hard by the left as well as the right in Congress and elsewhere. There are concerns she's too close to corporations that often sway elections with their money. And that is a very, very real concern. She was director of the Center for American Progress, which most people took as a progressive organization, but many on the left see as far too beholden to corporate donors. Of course, her mean tweets about progressive icon Bernie Sanders, her opposition to the $15 minimum wage, and Medicare for All has hardly made her the darling of progressives. One website called her nomination a middle finger to the left. That's maybe a little bit harsh, but it's apparent she's got enemies on both the left and on the right. Now, as mentioned, she deleted about a thousand tweets and she apologized for her more snarky missives. But at the end of the day, it may not be enough. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is a window into the soul of how Congress operates. For now, the Biden administration is standing behind her. That may, however, change at the drop of a hat. One thing is for certain. If it doesn't look like near attending can be confirmed, the Biden people will gently nudge her out of the gate. 
That's how things are done in politics these days, and it's been done this way for a while. And make no mistake, it has been a while. The media is also playing its assigned role in this particular little drama. The press need more grist for its mill. Already, there are tandem autopsies, blame being cast, and speculation about who will be nominated if she goes down in flames. And this is what the media does. They don't really have, although, to be fair, they did have Donald Trump at CPAC, which, of course, they covered like crazy, but they don't have him on an ongoing basis. They don't have his tweets every 15 minutes. They don't have the ongoing drama that was the presidency for the last four years. So Neera Tandon gets to be a replacement. At this point, we ought to explain what the Office of Management and Budget actually does and why the director's job is so important. OMB is a relatively new agency. It was created by Richard Nixon in 1970, not so long ago. Its function is to help the president prepare the federal budget and manage his or her vision across executive branch agencies. In other words, it's a very, very powerful position. Maybe too powerful for fits of peak and old tweets to count for a whole heck of a lot. Yet already, there's speculation about who may take Tandon's place if it looks like her nomination is doomed. And let me, for those of you who don't know this, if it looked right now, there's a, a, a case in the Senate of musical senators. There are a couple of Democratic senators who have a problem. Uh, certainly Bernie Sanders does. He hasn't said who he's going to actually, or whether he's going to support Tandon or not. But Joe Manchin has gone on record as saying he will not. That means they have to turn one Republican to allow Kamala Harris to decide Tandon's nomination. If they cannot do it, and it looks right now like they're focusing on Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, if she doesn't turn, and she, by the way, right now is not really tipping her hand, if she doesn't turn for Tandon, they will pull her nomination rather than be embarrassed on the Senate floor. And by embarrassed, I mean the nomination goes up in flames. Most of Biden's nominees for cabinet-level positions have gone through relatively easy. Uh, so this one, trust me, if it doesn't look like the numbers are there, they will pull this nomination. Now, what is going on now is... The numbers of people, and there are a couple of prominent people whose names have been bandied about who will replace their attendant if she doesn't look like she can get nominated and confirmed. There's first Ann O'Leary, who publicly supports Tandon, but reportedly says she can pass Senate muster, and she says that in private. There's also Shalanda Young, who is reportedly, who reportedly, that is, has support across party lines. If she's confirmed, she would be the first ever black woman to head the OMB. And several Republicans have signaled, at least to some published reports in the press, that they would back Shalanda Young, which means she might sail through where Tandon has a problem. Uh, Shalanda Young has kind of made her bones on the House Appropriations Committee. Powerful committee, I might add. Now, Tandon's confirmation is on hold, and so too is the Biden administration's 
first big test. Up next, want to buy the best protective mask to shield you from COVID-19? Wonder why it's so difficult? We'll tell you, this is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Now, back when the coronavirus first hit, I, like many, wanted to get the best mask possible to protect myself. Um, Because I'm fairly good at doing research and because I'm up in years now and didn't want to risk having the wrong kind of mask, Uh, I did a little digging. And throughout most of last year, the consensus was, and still is, that the N95 mask was the best one to do the job. Unfortunately, these gold standard masks were reserved for the better part of last year for medical personnel and first responders. In other words, they were not for sale in stores or even on Facebook or Amazon. There were... KN95 masks available, but even they were scarce early in the pandemic. KN95 masks are manufactured in China, and they're slightly, not much, but slightly less effective than the N95s. Not only that, there are millions of fake masks of both nomenclatures, both N95 and KN95, being sold all over the world. I remember I saw... I think it was about a month, month and a half ago, stories about hundreds of thousands of counterfeit KN95 masks and N95 masks uh, being confiscated at New York's JFK airport. So it is not uh, an isolated incident, that's for sure. And the general public, the consumer, the consumer really doesn't have a way of knowing unless they, again, do some digging Uh, as to whether or not they have a legit N95 or KN95. Now, there was and has been a comprehensive series of articles on these face masks, as well as how to spot fakes in the New York Times, one written by Brian X. Chen, the other by Andrew Jacobs. Now, Chen went to buy KN95s on Amazon only to find out through digging that the ones that he had bought or was planning to buy were likely fake. And this is something that he is recommending that I wholeheartedly agree with. And I don't just do this when I buy masks. That is to look at the comments for the mask you're thinking about buying. Just because it's on Amazon does not make it automatically legitimate. Some unscrupulous sellers even have ways of bypassing Amazon's fraud detection system. And they do, in fact, have a fraud detection system. Chen says other websites that allow third-party sellers to ship to consumers can also be problematic in terms of selling fake N95 or KN95 masks. Fact of the matter is, the KN95s are more susceptible to being sold as fakes, largely because the N95s are so difficult to get under any 
circumstances. And here's where the rub is. The Centers for Disease Control and other organizations, including the World Health Organization, has recommended at this point in the pandemic that people get and buy the best masks possible. That would be the N95 and the KN95. What's the problem? The problem is on Amazon, Facebook, and other websites, it is extremely difficult to buy N95 masks. Extremely difficult. In some cases, they just tell you they're either out of stock or they're not selling them because of that prohibition or at least guideline that said that those masks, particularly the N95s, should be reserved for medical personnel and first responders. And Facebook and Amazon are still kind of sort of reacting to that. The problem is this. There are, in fact, companies, several in the United States, one in Texas, one in Minnesota, uh, one in Miami, Florida, that are actually making N95 masks, but they are extremely difficult for consumers to buy unless you go direct to the manufacturer. Why? Because even if they are listed as being for sale on Amazon or Facebook, they get buried under an avalanche of KN95s of, in some cases, perfectly legitimate, but in other cases, dubious nomenclature, dubious value. Chen says that other websites can be a problem, and he says buy direct from the manufacturer. In looking for some KN95 masks for sale on Amazon, a number of customers, and I, this was not just one or two, I did this digging, a number of customers complained of not receiving all the masks they bought. In other words, they bought a lot of 50 and they only got 25, or they bought a lot of 20 and they only got 10. And this seems to be a relatively widespread problem. Sad it is, but it appears as though it's happening. When it comes to buying these and other and N95 masks, that is, if it was me, I would buy direct from a firm that has a lot to sell, but has trouble selling to hospitals. Or I would buy from the nonprofit N95 project. Now, what's interesting about the N95 project, and you can Google them and, and, and reach their website, they, in, in many cases, if you buy from the manufacturer, you have to buy in relative bulk, 100, 200, or whatever, and that gets into some serious money. What uh, the N95 project does is buy that stuff in bulk and then cut it down into more manageable bites and sell to consumers through their website. And again, they're nonprofits, so they're not making a whole bunch of money. They're not ripping anybody off. Now, to be honest, I'd be very skeptical of some of the non-surgical masks you can buy in drugstores and the like. Some of them are okay, uh, but they are not the best, uh, for my money anyway. They don't appear to be the best protection. I have a number of those store-bought masks, and what I'm doing now is using two of them at a time for added protection. There are a few other things that people ought to keep in mind. Once a large majority of people are vaccinated, the demand for masks is almost certain to go down. So will the price. Until that happens, buy as many as you and your family think you need, but most importantly, buy from a reputable source. 
I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Coming up, my conversation with music impresario Danny Goldberg on COVID, the entertainment business, progressive politics under Joe Biden, and a whole lot more. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Danny Goldberg might not be well known to people outside the music business, but music insiders know his name well. He's been personal manager to such rock icons as Nirvana, Steve Earle, Sonic Youth, the Allman Brothers, and many, many more. He's written several books, and he's currently president of Gold Village Entertainment. We had a recent conversation about his five decades of experience in the music business, his longstanding progressive views, and much, much more. Danny, let me start out by asking you, you started writing for Rolling Stone. I did a little research. You were 18 years old. Tell us a little bit about those times and what did you write about during that period? Well, I started, my first job was actually with Billboard, which was a trade magazine in the music business. And initially it was a clerical job uh, to help them compile the charts. This was the late 60s. There were no barcodes or computers or digitization of any kind. So we would, a bunch of us would sit in the room and, and, and physically call record stores and ask what was selling and have a checklist. And then I realized there were people on the other side of the office that were getting paid to write their opinions about records and concerts. And they got in for free and got free records. <laughs> and I thought this sounds like something I could do. I had, uh, I was not a very good high school student and uh, but I, I knew I could write my opinions about that. So I just kept nagging them. And what happened is they had staff writers, but there were so many things happening in New York City that I would be able to cover the ones as a stringer as a, on a freelance basis that none of the staff people wanted. And the, the high point of that era came with the Woodstock Festival because none of the staff writers wanted to go to Woodstock. By that time I was 19. And, um, you know, cause these were older guys, they were all guys who, who, uh, who wanted to go to places where you could get free drinks, like covering Smokey <laughs> Robinson Miracles at the Pope of Gabbana or things like that. They didn't want to go and be in a big field somewhere. And I, I was of the hippie generation that was excited to go. So that's, that's how it started. I just kind of, in those days, you know, uh, I think in every era there's disadvantages to being young and there's advantages. You know, young people today know how to work this digital stuff better than we do. But they Way better. <laughs> they don't always have the connections. At that time, you know, there were older people who understood everything about how the business worked, but they didn't understand the music. So that's how I got in, in, in the, initially by, by, by being uh, in the generation that understood what was then the popular music. You were a, a kind of music fanatic from an early age, as was I. What was it that, that drove you or made you come to music? I just don't really even know how I could articulate it. You know, it just, uh, certain music just gets into your head. Uh, it used to make me feel uh, less alone and it would be a mysterious process. Cause for example, Woody Guthrie had a song called Hard Traveling. 
So I'm like 13 or 14 years old and I'm listening. I've been doing some hard travel and I'm thinking, yeah, I've been doing some hard traveling too. My hard traveling was arguing with my social studies teacher because they didn't like my essay. But, you know, <laughs> we, you know I, I had a perfectly comfortable, you know, middle-class life. But the emotions of being a teenager made everything seem like hard traveling. So that's the mysterious. I think that a lot happened like that when my, when my son was growing up, who's now in his uh, 27, and how he could relate to hip hop because it wasn't like the lyrics were about a life that was anything like his external life, mm. but the inner feeling of desperation, of anger, of frustration, of aspiration spoke to the teenage minds, not just of African-Americans in, in the ghetto, but to, to a you know, massive white middle-class audience because it, it tapped into an emotion. So there's something about music that's able to touch uh, an emotional chord that makes people feel less alone that if other people are liking Bob Dylan and he's singing about Desolation Row, then I'm not the only freak who feels that sometimes life seems like a Desolation Row. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those mysterious things. Nobody really knows why, but, you know, there's been studies of Alzheimer's patients who are just, you know, they're just not communicating at all. And then mm -hmm. they put headphones on, they play them something from Duke Ellington or you know, when they were growing up, whatever the music was, and they suddenly come to life and start laughing. So there's something about music and the way it interrelates with the brain and the emotions that's different from any other kind of uh, communication. No, I understand very clearly what you're saying, because when I was uh, in my late teens, uh, I fell in love with three different albums. Uh, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks album. Oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, and uh, Charles Lloyd's Forest Flower. Also and one of my favorites. And Miles Davis's In a Silent Way. I, I used to, I went to NYU and I used to sit in their music listening room and listen to Miles Davis all day. Uh, so I understand exactly where you're coming from. Let me ask you this. You work with a, a wide variety of artists, everybody from Led Zeppelin, uh, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, Bonnie Raitt, Nirvana. What, was there a common thread that ran through them, not, not just musically, but in terms of their temperament, in terms of their mindset? Well, there's kind of a two-part answer to that. First of all, one common thing is that they all wanted to work with me. <laughs> a lot of people that I think are great who I never was able to connect with for one reason or another. But it seems like the people that I've been destined to work with over the decades have been artists that were very um, individualistic, who were what maybe in the movie world people would call auteurs, who, who wrote a lot of their own material, who certainly made all of their own decisions, who knew who they were. So I was never somebody who told someone how to dress or how to look or what an album cover should look like. It was always, these, these were fierce-minded, creative people, some of them I consider geniuses, who needed help in the business area, in the marketing area, and as a sounding board. So, so in that sense, I'm, I'm, I've always been more attractive, attracted to and think I can kind of better serve those kind of very strong-minded individualistic artists as opposed to people that are sort of singers where you've got to create a whole thing around them. I don't have the talent to figure out who should write a song or who should do the arrangement, but I do have a sensitivity to some of these very intense characters who, who produce some of the kind of music that I've worked with. Let me shift gears just a little bit and ask you, what shaped your progressive consciousness? 
I think my parents certainly, you know, my my political views are very similar to what my parents were when I was growing up and what I think they would be if they were still alive. Um, they were certainly, you know, I was born in 1950. So growing up in the 60s, the civil rights movement was a thing that our family was very supportive of. And my parents, you know, were, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, gave donations to the NAACP and CORE and whatever else there was. When the war in Vietnam started, you know, my dad, who had served in World War II and was part of the D-Day invasion, uh, you know, was very sympathetic to the anti-war argument. He, he didn't want his kids having to go to a war that he couldn't uh, justify. So a lot of it was that I grew up in an environment, and in those days, the word liberal was not a dirty word, you know, uh, and um, that uh, today we would call it progressive because liberal became debased in part by the Vietnam War. And, um, and that was really it. And then at the same time, uh, there were artists as I got older that seemed to be expressing what I was feeling about those issues in my vernacular, particularly a singer songwriter named Phil Oaks, you know. Oh, sure. Uh, it was a big game changer for me. He had a song, I Ain't a Marching Anymore. And another song called Love Me, I'm a Liberal, which kind of ridiculed uh, um, insincere liberals. And, uh, and people like uh, Buffy St. Marie with the Universal Soldier and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, later Marvin Gaye with What's Going On. And there were movies like uh, Dr. Strangelove and Seven Days in May uh, that spoke about these things. And there were things in the theater, uh, uh, you know, Blues for Mr. Charlie or I'm just trying to think of it. So, so, you know, to me, uh, as, a, as a 60s kid, uh, culture, art, uh, music, movies, and politics, and, and actually uh, spirituality, and to be honest with you, psychedelics, were all part of one cultural light that I was attracted to. I, I totally understand. I, I'm only a year younger than you, and a, a lot of what shaped you also shaped me. I also was very, very fortunate in that I had an older brother uh, who was a jazz fanatic. And right. during a time I listened to almost nothing but R&B and then I had started moving into listening to rock. I went to his house one day, he demanded that I sit down in the couch and listen to jazz. So mm -hmm. I listened to Charlie Parker, I listened to Dizzy Gillespie and all these different people who I had heard before but I really didn't understand. Right. And yeah. once you begin to understand it, like, wait a minute, you mean there was nothing that was done like this before them? And right. suddenly, you know, it's, it's, it's really very much like an epiphany. And it was, you know, some of the best times in my life. I still listen to Ballerina and Madame George from the Astro Weeks album. <laughs> and Me it's too. been like a half century already, you know? Me too. Well, there's something about the effect music has on you when you're in your teens that's different from any other time in your life. I, I, I think there are probably psychologists that could know the fancy words for it, imprinting or whatever like that. But there's no question that I, there's, there's songs I can listen to. And I remember what I was eating the first time I, I heard this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I remember who else was in the room the first time I heard, you know, Rubber Soul, mm -hmm. you know. And um, that's just not the case. Uh, for me, for music I heard in my 30s and 40s. I loved some music then, I love music now, but it comes from a little more of a different analytical place and not, it doesn't just go right into the emotional world the way music did when I was a, a teenager. No, it, it, it changes over time. I, I, one of my most vivid memories 
was being away at school and having a guy run up to me and said, Riley, you got to listen to this. Riley, you got to listen to this. And it was the Are You Experienced album. And I had never heard music quite like that before. I remember the first time I heard that. That was yeah. like unbelievable. That unbelievable. was yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. Let and me ask you this. You'll hear songs from that record, Purple Haze or... Hey, Joe. Like, it gets to me in a different way. Uh, and it's funny because because being in the business, as I got older, I'd meet people of my age and they'd say, oh, you know, the music today is not as good as it was when we were young. And I said, no, 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 we're just not as young as we used to we be. We used to be. <laughs> Absolutely. For a 15-year-old, it's just as good. It, 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 we're just not 15 anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Danny Goldberg, you have uh, a, a very unique view of the entertainment business. And I'm wondering, how does the music entertainment business rebound or recover from COVID? Oh, man. You know, um, I don't know exactly how, except that through the ages, you know, artists make art. Uh, you know, uh, I think, you, you know, uh, one of my clients, Steve Earle, who... who oh, yeah. Wonderful who, guy. Wonderful. Who, who I know you got to know. And uh, during our brief period working professionally together and, and who I still work with after 21 years. And, and, and um, you know, years ago, he said to me, uh, you know, artists do what they need to do to make art. He says, it's not that Michelangelo loved the Pope's politics. He needed a ceiling to paint. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. You know, I think that somehow it will find a way. Obviously, it's been an incredible hardship on uh, uh, many, many artists who made their living, paid their bills from live music, you know, yeah. and that's the that's the cohort we're talking about. Because the value of recordings and, and copyrights has not been damaged by uh, COVID because people are streaming more, you know, and yeah, that, yeah. that's the source of revenue. But for, um, for live performers and the musicians that play live and the road crew and those people, I mean, they've just been completely locked out, uh, you know, for a year and uh, uh, it's coming up on a year, you know, and, uh, and it's probably going to be at least another six months. And, and, you know, I don't, everybody is hanging on for dear life in their own way, borrowing money, getting other jobs, uh, lowering their costs in some way. I, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking thing, but I think there's still a demand for live music. We don't know how fast it's going to come back because firstly, you've got to get over the legal obstacles of, of sure. municipalities allowing a certain sized audience in a certain place. And they're going to start with one fourth capacity and then maybe go up to one half capacity. Obviously during the warm weather, it's going to, it's going to be more doable because outdoor is less likely for people to get infections. And, and then as the vaccine gets more widely, uh, you know, more, more people have gotten vaccines, um, that issue will subside. But then there's going to be the issue of some older members of the audience who are just going to still be scared. And people who just can't afford the tickets because of the incredible effect it's going to be expensive, that yeah. COVID and the pandemic has had on, 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 the, on the economy. So I think, I think it's going to come back slowly, uh, but it's going to come back in stages starting with this summer. And by the summer of next year, I think it's going to be kind of normal except for uh, the toll that the economic damage has taken on, on the society, you know, and that people will, uh, you know, I, but I do think that although there's been this phenomenon of streaming of music and people do like that experience because it's better than nothing, 
it's not the same as uh, being in a crowd, especially if you're single. Can't take a date <laughs> to a computer screen. Yeah. But also, true. there's beyond the dating aspect, there's a certain mystery to the feeling of being in a group of people experiencing music together or theater mm -hmm. that I think will will remain part of the culture despite all this digital stuff. But but how it'll play out economically is anybody's guess. We're just the people I know. We're just kind of one day at a time, one week at a time. Final quick question. What uh, I, I've read and heard from musicians who were very, very upset, you mentioned streaming, and they seem to be of a mind that they're not getting the revenue that they feel they deserve. Do yeah. they have a point? Well, uh, there's certainly a point uh, to it, and it didn't just start with streaming. I mean, this started with the um, so-called file sharing back around 2001, is when the old business started to uh, collapse. Uh, the old business was based, uh, you know, in the latter stages on compact discs. Before that, it was different formats, cassettes or albums, you know. And as, uh, you know, as it, uh, digitization became the thing and people could, uh, could get music uh, for free on the internet or there were sites that are driven by advertising, the, you know, the overall uh, value of uh, recording started to go down. So that was a trend that started before streaming. Mm -hmm. um, the irritating thing to a lot of people about streaming is that it has definitely saved the major record companies because they get these gigantic advances from companies like Spotify and Apple. Mm -hmm. And that uh, it's fine if you're in that rarefied upper 1% of Drake or Taylor Swift or people that have gigantic pop hits. But for the middle class artists, um, you know, the revenue is micro payments that, uh, that don't equate to what the royalty stream would have been uh, 20 years ago from selling albums. There, there is a, a, another side to it depending on who the songwriter and the artist is because, because these micropayments go on decades into the future, the value of owning copyrights or owning masters has actually increased, especially in the last few years as the Wall Street types have decided that streaming is here to stay and because of other weird factors like low interest rates that I don't really understand. So there are some people you read about, Neil Young or Bob Dylan or Stevie Nicks or other people getting gigantic sums of money by selling their catalogs. And those value, so those valuations are higher for the people that have been able to retain ownership. But it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not good. I, 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 uh, it, it's, it's, uh, there's certain artists are really at a disadvantage, certain writers are at a disadvantage, and there's, there's just not much that can be, done about it, uh, except trying to find for certain artists, new models. Uh, there are some artists that are on sites like this site, the uh, Patreon, where they do a personal subscription mm -hmm. service to their fans. Yeah. And for some artists, that's a good replacement of that income. If they have a passionate audience of a few thousand people that'll pay five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. So it's, it's a time of transition and there are people getting hurt as there always are in transitions. It's, it's all being driven by big tech and big finance and not by people that come out of the culture or the music business. But what else is new? We used to be very dependent on radio stations and yeah. radio stations sometimes had the same agenda as artists and sometimes different because radio stations were in business to sell advertising. They had to play songs that the research people told them got the good ratings and that that eliminated certain certain music from the airwaves you know 
and 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 they were concerned they used to the people at the radio programmers i used to know that did music would always talk about well we have to get we have to do research for the passive audience yeah the large group of people who are listening to the radio that may not be passionate about it but we don't want them to be irritated and turn the channel and those of us in the business who work with artists we didn't care anything about the passive audience we cared about the active audience that minority of super fans that'll buy tickets that'll buy records but that's not what the radio stations were in business to do. So then you go back to Mozart's time and he had to please some uh, archduke of something or other, <laughs> prince so-and-so. Yeah. And if that guy didn't like, yeah, that Amadeus is one of my favorite movies about that phenomenon. And yeah. Mozart had to like suck up to this royal dude <laughs> in order to make a living. You know? Absolutely. So Absolutely. it's, uh, you know, it's always a struggle being an artist. I, I don't, uh, I'm not a defender of the status quo. I'm a recognizer of it. This is what we got to deal with. Final quick question. Final, final quick question. Because uh, you talked about transitions. What do you think of the transition from Donald Trump to Joe Biden? As a progressive, do you believe that Joe Biden's agenda is in fact progressive? Well, you know, um, I think you, you made a key point, which is it's compared to what? I mean, compared to Donald Trump, yes. <laughs> compared to George W. Bush, yes. Compared to Bernie Sanders, no. But Bernie Sanders lost. You know, we, I, I, I do believe in democracy. I think that the Democratic primaries were more or less Democratic, uh, most, and, and, and that it was a substantial, more people wanted Joe Biden. So I do feel that Biden has better relationship with sort of the Bernie Sanders wing than Obama did. I think he yeah. recognizes that there has to be a left center coalition to beat the dark forces of the right. And that it feels a little bit better to me, the kind of people he's hiring than, than, than it did uh, with Clinton or Obama. But it's not going to be my socialist dream because that's not, there's not a governing consensus in America that agrees with everything I believe in. But I do think it's a huge improvement and that the underlying uh, crisis of COVID is creating a widespread demand for more government after decades of people believing Ronald Reagan's lie that the worst thing is the federal government. People mm -hmm. in Texas right now who are freezing to death, they're wishing the federal government was more engaged. <laughs> Absolutely. Even if they voted for Republicans their whole life. So I think there's a real chance that this could be an improvement. They've got to fix voting rights. They've got to fix democracy so that at least we can have something more democratic. We don't actually have a democracy in America, but a more democratic republic. And uh, you know, whatever, man. I, 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 uh, my first choice in the last uh, election was Elizabeth Warren. My second choice was Bernie. Uh, Biden wasn't in my top five, but I have to say I'm quite pleased with the campaign he ran, the way he did reach out to the left in a respectable way. Uh, I felt picking Harris for vice president was was the right thing to do. And some of the people he's hired are are impressive. And some of the people he's hired are people I wish he hadn't hired. But, you yeah. know, that's what happens when you live in a country with a lot of different kinds of people. Yeah, and that's politics, too. Thanks so much for listening. The executive producer of The Intersection is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until next time, please be well.